Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. Hey, hello, and welcome to another episode of Empowered Returns. I'm your host, P.T. Weinberg, founding partner at Charles Gate, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by Mike Procopio, the CEO of the Procopio Companies. Um, we are down Mike DeMella today, so just Mike and I, and uh, excited to get going here. Mike, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's awesome to be on. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. you taking the time to do it. So um, let's just start. Why don't you just kind of give a quick overview of the Procopio Company's history when you came on board and kind of your, your current role? Yeah, so uh, we're a family enterprise, obviously. Um, my grandfather started the company in 1950, so I'm third generation of ownership. I'm actually the fourth generation to work in the business. My great-grandfather worked in the business. He was, he was born in the 1890s. Um, and he worked on our job sites like well into the 1980s. Wow. Um, and, and, and he was well in his 80s up on staging, you know, uh, installing sites. <laughs> it was a little crazy. But um, so I came into the business. I came into the business in 2002 on the real estate sales side. Um, so it's, it's hard to believe I've been doing this for 20 years, but that's the case, I guess, 21 years. Um, and then in 2005, the business transitioned to Gen 2, which was my dad and my, and my uncle, Greg and I, and Mark, my brothers, bought the business in 2016. Um, and really, we facilitated a transition from large-scale single-family development, real estate brokerage, and, and site work construction to uh, multifamily development, institutional size deals, um, still do site work, still do construction management, um, and really began to scale the business to what it's become known for today from like a really hyper local construction company. That's what we were known for. Um, yeah. So really kind of a, a regional and now expanding into some other national markets uh, institutional developer. Yeah. So I think that's a really good segue, right? Because I've heard you talk about like transforming this from kind of a lifestyle family business to a full-blown enterprise business. Can you talk about that progression, kind of when you committed to pivoting to a full-blown enterprise and kind of what your, you know, long-term strategy is for, for the business? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think what we saw when, 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 we, when my brothers and I really kind of took over the business and started kind of making shifts, it wasn't just about how do we scale the business and, you know, and make more money and, and have, you know, all those things. It was really you know, we want to scale the business, we want to grow the business, but critical to that is that we want to have a business, right? I think a lot of times you lose sight of this for years, it was run, and it's a perfectly acceptable way to run a business, run as a lifestyle business, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yep. You know, you know how it goes with small businesses, you know, the owners are shoving all their expenses through the business and the, and the business is paying the bills and, and they lead a comfortable life, but there's not really enterprise value there. It's not a sellable business. It's not a real asset because nobody really knows what it's worth or what it's doing because it's, you know, it's paying for the owner's wife's gas and it's paying for the boat. And <laughs> this is how it works for these small companies. That's how our company was for, for frankly, 65 years, right? It was yeah. a small business. It was designed to support my grandfather and his family. It's designed to support my dad and my uncle. And we, and we had a great life. Our view was if we want to scale this, we actually have to create a business that has enterprise value. We need to focus on fundamentals. We need to focus on leaving money in the business. We need to focus on separating business from personal. We need to professionalize the roles. We need to professionalize compensation. We need to put all of those things go into creating a really um, 
valuable enterprise that has real value to an objective third party. Yeah. Um, and that's what, and that's what we decided to do. And, and as we made those shifts, what we actually saw was the results, not just from a value perspective, but that results in a better culture in the organization, right? If you professionalize your roles in the organization and your compensation systems, that's better than saying I'm an owner. So I get paid X, all right? right. That's how lifestyle businesses work. Well, there's three yeah. parts, we're all going to get paid the same. Well, in our business, we don't all get paid the same, right? We get paid right. for the role that we perform. And, and we get compensated as an owner through the profits or losses of the company, right? So, I mean, it, right. it, it's, it's about that kind of a transition. But it can be really challenging at times for smaller companies to have that mindset because it is a big shift, right? Like, yeah, you know, and some of it still lingers. I'll tell a funny anecdotal story. Like just this year, 2023, I got rid of all the personal cell phones that were on the company, account, right? My, my own included, right? So like, I haven't had a cell phone account basically ever in my life, right? Like my my phone, it was all in the company. And now yeah. we, now I literally, like that was one of the things that we were intent on doing was like getting all this personal stuff. Like now everybody has like, just remove it. The only phone, the only things on the company are the iPads, right? So like even things like that, as small as that seems, that's serving to more professionalize the business, refine the books of the business. Now we know what's business and what's personal. That matters. Yeah. So beyond obviously the just shift from lifestyle to true enterprise, right? Like, you know, you've been spearheading this and you're a very vocal proponent of, of strong leadership. And, you know, you've sort of taken the reins in that role as CEO and, you know, certainly kind of the face of the franchise, so to speak. And um, kind of what are your handful of foundational pillars that drive your leadership approach? Um, because again, I, you know, as someone who I, I, you know, candidly admire the way you've stepped up and, and, and kind of made that, you know, leadership and, and company culture a focal point of what you're trying to get out into the world. You know, what what's the backbone of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think a couple things really drive how I how I view leadership. I, I jokingly say that I have Ted Lasso leadership. Right. So which actually is true. Right. Um, you know, kindness matters. Compassion matters. Everyone. Everyone has value. Right. Culture matters. And then you layer on top of that um, some humor, some positivity, a good outlook. And really what has come into focus for us as the main driver is really high, really clear expectations and really clear accountability. Yeah. When you marry those two things up, now you've got a team that has a good culture. They've got good performance. They understand the assignment. They understand what the expectations are. Um, I got myself into a lot of trouble in my career trying to hold people accountable to expectations that were not clear. Right. Yeah. No, big time. Yeah. That were unspoken, that were in my brain, that were imagined. Expect they were trying to hold themselves accountable to expectations that they imagined that I didn't even have of them. So so I think when you can bring clarity to that process, you're able to lead in a much more effective way. Um, yeah. and and really, you know, one of the one of the things that I want for my team is I want to make everybody successful. I'm not looking for my team to back me up so that I can be successful. Um, I actually have written across one of the whiteboards in my office, I will make them all millionaires, right? Like that's literally like something that I look at every day. I will make them all millionaires, right? That, so I, yes. I want my team to see the success that I see, not just not just back me up, right? Like that's, I, I think there's different outlooks the way, we, the way we look at things. And to me, that's really important. As we've really tried, you guys have kind of been witness to this, 
you know, and we've tried many different things, even in our relationship with you guys, right? We're really quick to try something. If it doesn't work, we, we jettison it. Right? Yeah, you got to. You got to be nimble. Focus has you got to be nimble. Yeah. Team, building professionals. We, we now have a pretty mixed team of kind of homegrown talent that really understands the depth of the Procopio way and professionals that are accomplished in their career that we've brought in for the knowledge. Yeah. What, uh, what framework are you using for, you know, accountabilities and goal setting and so, so uh, up until now, we've been kind of using our own, our own framework. Um, a lot of it's come out of the Entree Leadership Program, um, but we're in the process right now of transitioning. Well, not transitioning. We are now running on EOS. So I don't know okay. if you're familiar with ent ent Entrepreneurial Operating System. This is Gino Whitman's uh, system. It's out of the book Traction. If people have read that, or Rocket Fuel, he's got a bunch of books. Okay. Out. Um, it's literally an operating system and a language for the business. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, we think it's highly effective. It's working so far for us. Um, and that system for accountability uses, um, uses a bunch of different tools that, that kind of allow the organization to speak the same language around it and be really, really clear with what the expectations and the goals are for any, any given period. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we've been using, uh, OKR framework. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's been, I mean, it's been good. It's been really good. And, and we're really, you know, similar to what you're talking about, right? Just trying to ramp up alignment of expectations, accountabilities, you know, real measurables and, you know, good goal setting. And, and um, you know, it's amazing once you get everyone on board with whatever that fr framework you're using is, you you know, it takes a little while for sure. It does. It right? does. Yeah. I mean, I, it was amazing to me the level of disconnect, right? With people that yeah. I thought knew, like, I know this, this person and I have worked together for so long. Right? So one of the first things I did was I had these accountability meetings and I was like, all right, we're going to set expectations. Here's how we're going to do it. I want you to take this and write on the whiteboard, every expectation that you think I have of you. What are the expectations for your role? And write this list, right? Now say 10 things, 12 things, right? These broad level expectations. And then I would say, now give me the pen. And I would write my list of the expectations. And what it exposed was the list didn't match. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that was just made up on there. And I would have to look at them and be like, I don't expect that out of you. Cross that off. Right. Like, that's not one of my expectations. And then there was things that it was like, how, how are we functioning in the job? And you actually don't know that I expect this of you. This is a core expectation of mine. Right. And what it yields is at the end of that meeting, you had one list. Right. Of the common, the, the combined expectations. These are the total expectations. You're able to then sit down and say, is this too many? Am I overloading this person? Is there any lack of clarity? Do you understand? Is every single one of these understood as we've discussed every single one of them? And then a commitment kind of to each other that there's no unspoken expectations or imagined expectations. And then you're able to move forward. Now, after that meeting, I have no problem holding someone accountable bluntly. Right. You are failing right. in this expectation. We sat down and we set this expectation and you're not performing. It's black yeah. and white at that point. And it allows much clearer, much more effective accountability because the expectations have been set. 99% of it's setting the expectation. The accountability is not the hard part. Accountability is only hard when the expectations haven't been set. Yeah. So what, uh, as you guys have transitioned all this, what are you most proud of, um, you know, about your team at Procopio as you guys have transitioned, you know, from a small business, lifestyle business to, you know, a, a, a significant, you know, enterprise organization yeah. that's, um, you know, continuing to grow at a pretty rapid pace. I, I could not be more proud of the team members that we have in place. They 
the amount of personal growth that they have undertaken and undergone to grow with us through this is astounding. The the level of like you take some of our field teams, we have we have homegrown superintendents. They've never worked for any other company as a superintendent, right? They grew up on our construction projects. They came out of our carpentry crews, became superintendents for us, are running, you know, 50, 60, 70 million dollar multifamily jobs successfully and winning superintendent of the year from the prism awards right that, yeah. that, that i'm so proud of those guys right like the whole and that could that's a story that could be seen across the whole team right um you know they, they've just they, they are they're an incredible group of people and i am more convinced than ever that organizations rise and fall on their people right uh the, the importance no doubt. of the no people doubt. and the culture the importance of hr you know, as that quote unquote umbrella, the whole HR umbrella of, of culture and people and, and kind of how you steward your human resources. I, I am more convinced than ever that most businesses get this wrong. Yeah. And it is, the, right, so that's it is the foundational piece of the growth. I could yeah, not no, no doubt. No doubt. And that's actually kind of a cool segue maybe. So let's get into like some more real estate specific discussion. Let's talk about some of your projects, kind of talk about where you guys started as a company from the development side and how you evolved into the, the types of projects that you're currently up to. Yeah. So we were, when we were, when we were a core construction company, we were mostly doing single family houses. They were upper middle market, single family houses. what we were known for. Saugus, Peabody, Danvers, you know, that Linfield, that, that neck of the woods, right? So kind of inner suburbs, they were, they were move up markets. It was people that had started in, in Everett and Chelsea and Revere and Malden. And they wanted to kind of move up as they, you know, we built a lot for business owners and doctors and lawyers and kind of that upper middle class house, right? Um, in today's dollars, if we were still building the product we were building in today's dollars, they were kind of, two, uh, you know, 1.6 to $2 million homes, right? Like, okay. so it yeah. wasn't your starter homes, but it also, I wasn't building homes for, for billionaires, right? Right. Um, I was just building homes for kind of successful middle class folks. Um we were building large scale. So we were building subdivisions of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 homes, 100 homes, which in this part of the world is, is big, right? We, yeah, yeah. Subdivisions yeah. here are small. You know, most subdivisions here are like six homes, eight homes, 10 homes. So when you talk about doing a subdivision of, you know, 70 homes that are that size, right, all 4,000 square foot, that's a lot of houses. Um, that, that's what we were doing. And really, bluntly, we, we weren't making any money yet. <laughs> we would spend all this emotional bad. I thought all developers made millions every deal they did. No, it's bananas. And we were, <laughs> like, I'll tell you, the last houses we were doing, the real epiphany for me building, transitioning to multifamily was this. We were building these houses. It was taking us a year to build the house. We had a custom client. So no matter how friendly we were with the client, at the end of a 12-month construction project, you don't like each other, right? Like right. you're just frustrated, right? Even if everything goes well, you're frustrated. It's been 12 yeah. months to kind of decision points and, and things that happen and it's just not good. And at the end of that project, selling a house for a million and a half bucks, we might've made a hundred grand. That's the right. Thing, right. Right. Maybe 50 grand. We lost, I know we lost money on plenty of them. Right. So like, right. I looked at that and I said, in 12 months, I can take the same team, the same project manager, the same superintendent, the same 12 months. And I could build an apartment building. And I bet I could make a lot more than a hundred grand on the apartment building. So I went out and I found a piece of land and I bought an entitled piece of dirt in Lynn where Needham's Landing is today and bought it from Dave Salamini, bought the land for 700 grand and built 42 units there in a year with the same team. Yeah. 
And we built it for 4 million and we sold it for 7.9 million three months after we finished construction. And it was proof of concept. Instead of making a hundred grand on a house, we made three and a half million bucks on a multifamily building. And I said, I'm never going back to single families. Yeah. I'm done. And our first one was 42 units. And our second one was a hundred units. And our third one was 259 units. And then the story's written, right? And at that point, after those deals, we had access to institutional capital and institutional partners. We had access to kind of the cream of the crop and the best of the business in terms of trade partners and contractors and property management teams. And then it, that precipitated the focus. We had to then turn inward. And we said, okay, well, now the externalities are all solved. We're working with the best lenders. We're working with the best capital partners. We're working with the largest private equity groups in the, in the world. Now it's an us problem if we want to continue to grow. And then we have to turn inward and start looking at people and systems. And okay, well, now you can't build 250 units with the same superintendent to build the house. That's not going to work. That worked for the first building. That's not going to work moving forward, right? You need more experience. You need more knowledge. You need people that know safety. You need people that know risk management. You need people that know QA, QC. And we started to actually then build out the business. And I think that's where most of the market saw us start to become a quote unquote factor or a player in the, in the regional market for sure. Yeah. And suddenly, because I think for a lot of people, it just seems like Procopio just like burst on the scene in like, in like, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020. It's like, where did these guys come from? Well, the reality is we were here for 75 years. We just weren't out there in the market to the extent that we are today. And now we've, we've successfully created a name that means a lot to us. And, and it's, and it, that precipitated kind of that internal growth. So and, you know, our project, so now we're in just to close the loop on that. Now we're in yeah. the segments of we'll still do boutique uh, multifamily. So we'll do projects that are 30 to a hundred units. That's definitely sub-institutional. Will you still build those yourselves or not? Yep, absolutely. Yep. We'll still build okay. those ourselves. We'll do institutional projects that are 250 to 400 units. We have multiples of those going at any given point in time. Those we typically don't build ourselves. We're just not a right. group. So we're hiring the big GCs to do those. And we're <clears throat> creating value in other ways. Yep. We're now moving into the single-family rental space. Back to building single families, ironically. But they look a lot different. And they're for rent. So really, right. we consider that horizontal multifamily. We don't really consider it a single family product. It's just apartments that have four walls and a roof. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So moving back into that space um, and we're expanding beyond New England, right? Right now we have operations in Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Maine and kind of all the New England stuff. And now we're really we've been on the ground in North Carolina for over a year underwriting cool. sites sending out LOIs, meeting with GCs, kind of building the infrastructure there to get projects off the ground, North Florida, Texas markets. Um, we see growth in a lot of these areas. Obviously, it's challenging times right now from a macroeconomic perspective, but we very much view that, you know, to be ready for the next boom or to be ready for the next up cycle. I remember driving down Revere Beach in 2009 with my dad. In 2009, nothing had been built on Revere Beach at all. Right. And you could have bought every single piece of land on Revere Beach combined. All of them you could have bought for 10 or 15 million bucks, right? Today, I mean, they were all like a million bucks each people wanted. Right, them. yeah. Today, those parcels individually sell for 20 to $30 million a piece. And everybody knows what's happened with Revere Beach. That has always been a very distinct marker in my history in business. And I promised myself I would never be in that position again where I knew there was value there and did not have the liquidity 
to buy even one of those pieces of land. Right. Right. And right. now I think we're entering very similar times from a from a land perspective. I think land's going to start to get really clipped. It's the last yeah. piece of the puzzle. And there's going to be tremendous opportunity out there because of failed projects um, for people to position themselves very well for what I think is going to be inc an incredible bull run in 25, 26, 27, 28. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that like a little bit deeper with your comment. on sort of, let, I'd love to just get your quick synopsis on the overall macroeconomic climate, you know, what you just alluded to as far as, you know, down cycle versus where you see things swinging back the other way. And obviously in conjunction with all of that, your strategic decision to start expanding your geographic horizon and how that decision correlated to our, our, our market, our local market sort of development status, if you will. Yeah. Right. So I think, I think from, from a macro perspective, obviously it's really challenging times, right? Interest rates have expanded 600 basis points. Um, that's, that's really challenging to get deals done, right? I mean, you take, you take the direct impact from that on a development pro forma, mind carry costs. Um, our interest reserve for our Haverhill project that we're doing went from 4 million to 8 million. I mean, that's significant, right? Imagine if your, imagine if your construction costs went up double, right? Like right. that's a significant, a significant driver. Now, then the, then the, then the carry uh, reserve, the operating reserve had to double because now the interest while the building's vacant is, is double, right? So there's that, there's that impact. Uh, in other markets, what we've seen is an expansion in cap rates as well. So now we've seen the value drive down, right? That has not happened to the same extent in Boston. Cap rates have expanded a little bit. Right. So maybe 50 basis points, depending on where you are. Um, you know, we were selling some product for, you know, in the high three, three cap range. And now that stuff's in the fours. It's not sixes, right? And other parts of the country, it's fives and sixes. Yeah. Boston's very resilient. Boston is, is significantly undersupplied. Boston has significantly, when I say Boston, I'm talking 495. Yep. Uh, Boston, uh, significantly undersupplied, significant barriers to entry, significant zoning reform needed, and all of those things combine with the result that you can't build enough housing. You cannot build enough housing in Boston. There is inherent demand. Um, you know, I'll give a simple example. We did a project in Wilmington. You guys manage it. We pro forma these townhouses. We got these two bedroom townhouses over there. Crazy numbers. Crazy. Crazy. Numbers. They were pro forma. I remember the original number was like 20. Like high threes, right? No, no, no. The original was 2,800. And, okay. and then construction costs went up and we needed to fix the pro forma. So we said, ah, oh, we'll get, we'll get 31, 32 for these. And the banks and the appraisers were busting our chops that we would never get 3,200 or 3,300 a month for these townhouses on Main Street in Wilmington, Massachusetts, and they're renting for 52. 50, yeah, it was over five grand. <laughs> right. Crazy. The, the level of undersupply and demand in these markets is astounding. That project in Wilmington, again, another example of barriers to entry. That project in Wilmington was the first new multifamily building larger than two units built in 10 years. In that right. So two units. That's insane. Right. Like not even like a 10 unit here or there. Duplex. That's the first. <laughs> so. You know, so that, that leads to Boston having a really nice forward-looking story. We are very, very, very bullish on Boston. Yeah. Um, not Boston proper, the city. Boston proper, the city has its own pack of issues right now from a regulatory yeah. and, and, and landlord relations kind of um, perspective. That's very, very challenging and is going to be very challenged if stuff doesn't change. But outside of Boston zip codes, inside 495, 
incredibly bullish on almost all yeah. those communities. Um, I think when you start to tie that story into how we look at other markets and market expansion, we start to look, what, what we really started to do is say, okay, what's, what can be another Boston for us? We don't want to, we're not a developer that's going to go into a market and build one building. We can't sustain that, right? I'm not going to put boots on the ground, build one building in Dallas, Texas, and have to fly back and forth to Dallas every other week, right? Like that's just not going to work. So we said, okay, what's a market where we could see ourselves building 10 deals, building two deals at a time, three deals at a time, owning 10 deals there, right? What's a market that has economic drivers like Boston? And the first market we looked at was Raleigh. Well, not the Raleigh, first one. Yeah. The first one we settled on was Raleigh, North Carolina. If you look at the research triangle, it looks and acts like Boston. Meds, eds, life science, and technology. Those are the drivers in Raleigh. What are the drivers in Boston? Eds, meds, life science, technology. Add in a little bit of defense contracting. They're nearly identical markets. Look at the people base in Boston. Significant inflows from the Northeast. Right? North Carolina, I like to say, is still pine trees, not palm trees. Right? It acts, it's it's better climate, it's better winters, it's better living, it's better lifestyle, it's a better cost of living, and it still looks and feels a lot like the Northeast. So Raleigh kind of was the first one that we kind of said, hey, Raleigh's gonna play, I think, over the next 10 years in the United States, an outside, it's gonna punch well above its weight class in terms of its economic production. Yeah. That's clear, that's very clear to me. And then we started to look beyond that and say, okay, what are some other growth markets? We've always been big gateway city players in Massachusetts, right? We built seven, eight buildings in Lynn. We're building buildings in, you know, Beverly. We're building buildings in Haverhill. We've got projects we're looking at in Lowell, right? Um, so we said, what are the national markets that fit that mold, right? Kind of growth expansion markets, right? You know, everybody wants to talk about Florida. Where do they go in Florida? They go to Orlando, they go to Tampa, they go to Miami, they go to Fort Lauderdale, they go to Palm Beach, they go to Naples. Well, what about Jacksonville? Jacksonville is the, the fastest growing city in Florida. Go to south of Jacksonville. Look at the stuff in St. Augustine, St. John's County. We're really, really bought in on kind of that area of the state, the northeast corner, and what its growth potential looks like. Look at some markets in, in Alabama, um, Birmingham, Huntsville. Um, you know, everybody liked to laugh about Trump's Space Force, but the reality is what put Colorado on the map as a real estate market? The Air Force did. Right. And I think you're going to see significant inflows of money, defense contracting, major technology firms, space exploration firms flowing into Alabama because that's where Space Space Force has been headquartered. So I, I think there's a lot of these factors that there's some markets out there that people don't traditionally think of that are going to prove to be growth markets over the next decade in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So what are uh, what are kind of two or three of the most memorable projects you guys have done? Uh, so, I, I, well, I mean, look. Caldwell will always, Caldwell, be, I mean, Caldwell that's a will always be one of the big memories, right? We bought a piece of dirt in downtown Lynn uh, when nobody was doing anything in Lynn. I will, I will, I will. Everybody thinks that Lynn was like already on the map. Nobody was doing anything. No, in Lynn. Like, it was not. They say that they're yeah. liars. Um, we bought a piece of dirt in downtown Lynn across from the train station for 3 million bucks. And we built a 259 unit high rise on it. And it was our first big joint venture. We joint venture, we, we, we uh, JV with the Carlisle group world's biggest private equity groups and uh you know our, our our lender was a new york big new york bank and uh you know it was kind of like just being dropped into the deep end we were basically i mean we had no built, floaties yeah, we no had floaties landing, we had built needham's landing and ironwood and right. it was it'll always be a, it'll hold a special place right that was a wildly successful project we sold that to the green cities company that traded for a 3.4 cap in downtown lynn it absolutely proved to people that Lynn can be an institutional market that you don't need some sexy zip code to develop in. 
housing is needed, uh, transit housing especially. So that that's always going to be special. Um, I would say the two other ones I, I I love. I mean, you know them well. You guys manage them. I, you know, the Sedna. It's hard not to like that project. Yeah, cool site. Opportunity Zone site on the Atlantic Ocean and the Danvers River in Beverly, Massachusetts. Beverly's such a great town. It's right on the waterfront. The four-acre site, two buildings. Not a huge project, but just yeah, game changer kind of project. Not far from that chicken place you sent me to. Flip the bird. Yeah, flip the bird. <laughs> Shout out to Flip the Bird. Great sandwich. Don't yeah. order the Cryberg unless you have a significantly high tolerance for like ghost peppers. Oh uh, yeah, no chance. No tongue. chance. <laughs> um, and then, and then I, I, you know, I love the Winthrop Project. I love Somerset. It is, yep. it is the definition of boutique. It's 29 units and a commercial space. It has almost no amenities, but it is really nice. It's really well executed. It's in the heart of French Square. To me, that is just legacy generational real estate. And it's not a really big building, but that is right. a building. I mean, we're always opportunistic looking at what do we sell, what do we keep. I would be happy to own that building for 30 years. Like that right. building, it, that location, that building just is outstanding. I love those. Yeah. Those, are the, those are my three, my three babies. So, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, you know, in much depth and, and, and you know, I think it's been maybe referenced in passing here and during this conversation, but, um, you know, when we we're talking macroeconomics here, like the, the capital markets obviously have changed dramatically over the past, you know, call it 12, 18 months. Um, how are you structuring deals differently, you know, both partnerships, capital stacks, given the volatility in the capital markets, comparatively speaking to what you were doing back in, you know, pre-pandemic or, um, you know, even post-pandemic before, you know, the, the massive uh, change in, in, in rates. So I would say, I would say two big factors. Number one, debt proceeds are down. So um, pre-pandemic, even during pandemic, um, not uncommon at all to get um, 80% leverage, 75% right. leverage. Um, certainly in Boston, right? I'm sure there are people that will watch this outside of Boston and be like, what are you smoking? But that was normal in Boston. Yeah, yeah. totally. Development deals all day long with 80% leverage, um, uh, even non-recourse at times. So th those are down, right? I mean, you're really lucky today if you get 60, 65% of a development deal and, and really 50% even more common. So that proceeds are way down. Um, on the equity side, I would say, I, I actually think the worst is behind us. We went through a period of time trying to raise equity for deals, especially larger institutional deals where there was no JV equity available. Yeah. Um, it was all prep stuff. There was no traditional JV equity out there. That that has started to come back. I think people are starting to get a little more comfortable. Um, they're starting to understand what, what pricing should be and what valuations are going to be. They've been focused on asset management stuff and marketing to market stuff they own. I think that's back a little bit, but it is, it is more challenging. I'm going to give you one example. Our Haverhill project, that is an institutional deal. It's almost 300 units. It's a $136 million project. It's a $50 million equity check. That normally is a layup for a private equity group. You go to New York, you get five term sheets, you pick one, and you close the deal. That is traditionally how that would work. It pencils, it yields, it's a great project. We didn't get a single term sheet, right? Wow. We, we syndicated the equity on that, right, from individual investors. We're, syndic we're in the process of syndicating $50 million. So. You know, that's a major shift. I'm not sure that process we started in November. I'm not sure today it would be quite as bad. I think we probably would get some term sheets today. I think I think the markets come back yeah. a little bit. But yeah. it's, it's been very challenged for sure. I, I think for smaller developers, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to do some deals with some creative pref financing. Um, you know, bigger guys don't like that. We, we want to kind of 
spread the risk out a little bit. But, you know, deals can get done. It's it's just challenging right now. And, and I think I think that one of the things this is going to cause, if you think about these big funds, um, they've raised, you know, we just, right, Blackstone just raised the largest real estate fund in the world, $30 billion. They have to put that money on the street. Right. So they might be on pause right now. But whenever they decide to get off of the bench and get back on the field, that money is going to come flooding in like the days of Noah. Like it's just going to be a tsunami of money into the market. It has to be. They don't have another option because to raise a fund and not deploy the money and not call your capital is a bigger failure than raising a fund and actually hitting lower returns. Right. right? So the last thing they want to do is have raised 10 billion, 20 billion, 30 billion and only be able to deploy 10 of it. Yep. Right. So that money will come online. And and my view is a lot of that's going to come online next year. And for the guys that can position themselves right right now, take some wins, hoard some cash, shore up the balance sheet today, be a really, really, really good position going into 24 and 25 to be able to grab the deals that are going to be selling in 28 and 29 into a further, further supply constrained market. And I think we all think it's mind blowing that we talk right now about trading at, you know, new assets trading at 500, 600 a door. I, I don't think it's a stretch at all for us to be talking in five years about assets trading for 1.2 million a day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with you. All right. Let's start winding it down here. What's, uh, what's one thing about your job or field of expertise that almost no one agrees with you about? I hate work from home. I know you do. <laughs> I know you. If you work for me, you do not work from home. You work from the office. I'll give you two real reasons why, because I don't I'm not just a contrarian. I actually don't think that everybody disagrees with me. I think most CEOs secretly agree with me. They just can't just, say it. They're yeah. afraid of the pitchforks. Right. Yeah. And feathered, and I am afraid of none of those things. So um in our business, uh, if you work from home, you do not uh you do not benefit from the knowledge of your colleagues. You are not able to be effectively mentored and you are not able to effectively learn the business. Um, and you are unable to contribute to a positive culture, which is what builds the company. So those yep. are the two reasons I don't like it. It's not because I don't want to give people flexibility. I pride myself on giving people flexibility. Right. Um, I, I just don't think it works. Yeah, no, that's really well said. Um, what's kind of like a, a crazy but true fact about you? Um, I used to be a, <laughs> I used to be a technical shipwreck diver pre-kids. No way. Yeah. So our, our, our typical dives were well below 300 feet, uh, North Atlantic, actually all over the world. Um, cave diving, wreck diving. Yeah. I've got, I've got, uh, 12, uh, 12 dives on the Andrea Doria. Um, Yeah. What's the coolest my, thing you ever found? My my brother Greg, my brother Greg too. Oh, we find all sorts of junk. My, my brother Greg's got a porthole from the Andrea Doria on his office wall. We pulled up all sorts of stuff. China, you know, first class China dishes from from some of these things. Greg, my brother Greg pulled wine bottles off of the HMS Prince of Wales, which sunk off of Singapore out of the captain's wine closet. Like all sorts of stuff. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, what's the best uh, what best book you've read in the past few months? Um. That's a that's a great question. Um, I'm rereading Traction because we're doing EOS. That's that's really good. It's kind of dry if that's not what people want. Um, rereading Good to Great. I would give a great book recommendation if somebody wants if somebody wants a really simple, really easy read. Read Our Iceberg Is Melting. Okay. All right. Last one. Who's got a better shot to win the title, the Celtics or the Bruins? Celtics. 
Celtics. Huh? That last game, notwithstanding. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. You going to any games? Are you going to be in any playoff games or not? Uh, no, I don't know. Maybe I should. My, my youngest keeps bugging me to take him to a basketball game. All he does is walk around the house dribbling a basketball. He's four. Not even four. There you go. And, uh, I, he would he would be ecstatic if I could get him courtside at a game, but he might be a little crazy. Yeah, I took my two older ones to uh, game one of the Bruins series. We had so. Bruins season tickets. We gave them up last year because it was a full-time job for someone in my office to give away the tickets. I said, this is ridiculous. They buy the tickets and we can't give them away. I mean, just call Charles Gate. We got a whole bunch of demand there. Um, all right, man. We'll really appreciate you being with us again. Uh, Mike Procopio, CEO of the Procopio Companies, doing some amazing work um, nationally now. And um, just, again, really proud to be partnered with you on some of your stuff and uh, just big fan of, of everything you guys are up to. So thanks again for joining us. And uh, that'll end uh, this episode of Empowered Returns. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.